Would you pray with me, please? God, we give you thanks that uh, these trumpets have awakened our souls on this morning. We thank you that you are here and present with us and pray that you would speak to us through your word, that it will shape us and help us to know how we may live as your faithful people in this world today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It seems only appropriate on Father's Day that we read and reflect this morning on a story in which Jesus interacts with a dad. Um, Dad like a lot of you. You'll understand a little bit later as we unpack the service, uh, or unpack the sermon rather, but uh, just an ordinary dad who came to Jesus with a particular need and something pretty remarkable happened along the way. One of the things that I think dads tend to do today is we try to do what seems to be the, the call of the age, and that is to multitask. Let me just say that none of us do it well. Uh, I read a book uh, several years ago entitled The Myth of Multitasking. Uh, we're really not doing two or three things all at the same time. We're switching back and forth between the things that we're doing. If you really think you can multitask well, take one of your young children or grandchildren out, push them on the swing set while you're also checking mail on your cell phone. Make sure your dentist is in the quick call list because you're probably going to lose some teeth. Multitasking just doesn't really work out that well. A number of years ago, case in point, I'll throw myself under the bus. I was at home. I was online. I was paying bills. We all do that. Uh, online bill pay has revolutionized my life. Uh, I'm doing, I'm paying the bills. I've also got the news on, on the television uh, right above me there in the kitchen. And I've got the sports section next to me. I can multitask. I can multitask very well. So I'm paying bills while I'm watching the news and flipping, uh, reading the sports, finding out what's going on. That's like, you know, never check the box scores when your wife walks in and says, does this dress make me look fat? You're not multitasking. You're paying attention to the box scores. And when you say, yes, it's not going to end well. So this is what I'm doing. My wife did not walk into the room, but I'm switching back and forth from online bill pay to the news, to the sports, to the news, to the sports, to bills, to the sports, and just kind of moving around like this. And I'm paying bills, and I get to that point. I've, I've entered all the information. I get to the point that I'm ready to click pay the bills. And they know that we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. So they've got that little window that pops up are you sure you're ready to pay these bills? It's like, yes. For me, they really need to have about two more windows that pop up because I discovered after the next window popped up and you have just agreed to pay these bills, instead of paying USAA $157.60, I had just paid USAA $15,760. And there's no, go back, go back. You hit the back button and it doesn't work. So I am now having heart palpitations. Uh, I am on the phone with the bank. I'm online. The bank is having to get online. I did not pay my insurance for the next 37 years, fortunately. <laughs> you know, fortunately, it was a couple of days later, it was going out, we worked it out. So multitasking 
doesn't always work out as well as we would like to think it does. Take a look at this uh, snippet of a clip from a TED Talk uh, in 2012 by Italian designer Paolo Cardini. I'm a designer and an educator. I'm a multitasking person, and I push my students to fly through a very creative multitasking design process. But how efficient is really this multitasking? Let's consider for a while the option of monotasking. A couple of examples. <laughs> Look at that. This is my multitasking activity result. So trying to cook, answering the phone, writing SMS, and maybe uploading some pictures about this awesome barbecue. I've done it. I've burned the chicken because I took my eyes off the game and I was doing something else. But all of us have done this. Uh, we're on the phone, we're doing an activity, we're checking Facebook, we're uploading pictures, we're doing something else. You know, there is a reason there is a law against texting and driving. We don't multitask well. There was one person who did. His name was Jesus. Listen to this story from the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. And I'm just going to read the story uh, and along the way hit the pause button and reflect on what's going on around this story. If you've got your own Bible, follow along. If not, we'll have it on the screens. We have Bibles and the pew racks in front of you. Starting verse 21 of Mark 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, just to contextualize this, the story that immediately precedes this is the story of Jesus going across the lake or, or the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias, depending on how it's called at that particular point. He goes across the lake and encounters the man. Uh, you'll remember the story. Uh, he's in the tombs. He's a wild man. Uh, he says, what's your name? My name is Legion. He was possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus casts the demons out. They go into a herd of pigs. Why pigs? They're not kosher. They go down into the water and they all perish. Uh, he gets back in the boat, crosses over to the other side of the lake, probably landing right at or very near Capernaum, which is where we think this story probably took place. That's, uh, he has crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, this is remarkable because earlier I said Jairus is a lot like a lot of you, and I meant that. Jairus, as a synagogue ruler, is, is not a member of the clergy. He's not ordained. He's, he's not a priest. He is a member of the congregation, a member of the congregation with significant influence and import and opportunity. Uh, he has been asked by the congregation to be the synagogue ruler, or sometimes you may read the synagogue president. My across-the-street neighbor, one door down, recently, just a few years ago, served as the synagogue president of his synagogue. He is a GI doc, but he served as the synagogue president. The synagogue ruler was responsible for what we're doing right now, making sure the services took place in an orderly fashion, that the musicians were where they needed to be at the right time, that the, the clergy were where they needed to be at the right time, that someone was turning on the lights, managing the service. 
The synagogue ruler typically did not participate in the service, but made sure it happened. Because this was such a significant role, he was well recognized in the community. He was a person of significant importance in the community. He was respected. He was looked up to. He was like E.F. Hutton. When he spoke, people listened. When he walked down the, the street in the day, people spoke to him. They wanted him to know who they were because they may need his attention someday. Jairus is an important person. And he comes running up to Jesus, this renegade rabbi who the religious authorities don't like, don't trust, don't want to associate with. And the ruler of the synagogue runs up falls down at Jesus' feet. Imagine the scene. He is dropped on his knees in front of Jesus and is looking up at him with a pleading expression. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus. My little daughter is dying. Please come. Put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. Jesus went with him. That's what you do with important people. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. This was not a hangnail that she had picked at and kept picking at for 12 years that was just kind of infected and, and a problem. This was a significant and a serious medical condition that was causing problems. Not only medical and physical problems, but this was impacting her psychologically and spiritually. Because if you go back into the Old Testament and read the Levitical Code, you'll realize that the condition that this woman has makes her ceremonially, ritually, spiritually unclean. She could not go to the temple, to the synagogue, and worship because she's been bleeding. She just couldn't go there. And because she could not go to the synagogue, and worship, she couldn't go to the synagogue and make an offering for the forgiveness of her sins. So in the eyes of the community around her, she is a spiritually unclean person. So she has this perception that there is this great gulf between herself and God, that God doesn't like her, God doesn't listen to her, God doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Everyone around her, her family and her friends, understand this is the context of her life. For 12 years, she's been doing this. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. You know people who've been there and done that. They've tried everything, every kind of conventional treatment and medicine available, and nothing works. And when all of the conventional treatments and, and protocols don't work, what do you do? You try the unconventional treatments and protocols. She's probably exhausted every one of the conventional and unconventional treatments three times over the course of 12 years. She's tried everything, and nothing has worked. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, 
If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, an interesting word there that is translated healed, we miss it in the translation into English, but it's a, it's a very unusual word. The root word that Mark or, or that the English translators have rendered healed is actually a word that refers to salvation. It's the root word that is translated saved in other places. It's the root word that is translated savior in other places. There are two other words in the Greek language that could have been used to refer to healing that would have nothing to do with anything but healing. Mark uses this word I think with a significant reason, and that is to communicate to us that in Jesus we find more than just physical healing. We find hope, we find wholeness, we find eternal salvation. If I just touch the hem of his cloak. Immediately, that word, the word immediately appears 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. 40 times the word immediately, sometimes other forms in English, 40 times it pops up in the Gospel, letting us know in no uncertain terms that there is an urgency about the mission of God. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He, he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, this is a ridiculous question. Uh, in fact, the disciples are going to call him on it in just a moment. But for him to ask, who touched my clothes, is just absolutely crazy. Uh, Don and I were, a week ago today, we were in Rome. We were wandering around a week ago yesterday, Saturday, uh, St. Peter's Square, St. Peter's Basilica. There, we were there with uh, 22 other folks from the church on this tour, and we're walking around St. Peter's Square with more people than you can shake a stick at. And we go from the square into the basilica to walk around, and I'm walking around like this uh, with my pants, my pick pocket-proof pants, the pockets zipped shut, velcroed shut, the tab folded over, buttoned down, and I'm walking around St. Peter's Basilica like this, thinking, who touched me? <laughs> who touched me? This is crazy. This is like Devonta Freeman diving in a goal line stand to score a touchdown for the Falcons and saying, who tackled me? Well, there are 11 people lying on top of you. Which one of them are you talking about? So it's, it's just an absolutely crazy question. And it starts a detour because while Jesus is walking along, the woman touched him. It's like, wait a minute, something just happened here. Jesus kept looking, or you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And you can ask who touched me? Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, just like Jairus did. Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Two, two things real quick about this. Uh, one 
it's not really that her faith healed her. Let me get theological for just a moment. Our faith doesn't heal us because then we think our healing comes from ourselves. In this context, in this case, healing came from Jesus. But the woman's faith was the channel through which the power of God worked to bring her healing. We've all had people tell, to, tell us at one time or another, you know, if you just had more faith, if you just had a little faith, it's not the quantity of our faith. It's not even the quality of our faith. It's the power of God. So one, realize that it's not your faith that will heal you, it's Jesus. Two, imagine this scene in a movie. Jairus says, come heal my daughter. Jesus says, okay, let's go. They're on the way. And then all of a sudden Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Jairus is having those heart palpitations like I had when I realized I just entered the wrong number for USAA insurance. Jairus is thinking, he's got his hand in his pocket, he's jiggling his coins, he's saying, Jesus, my little daughter, let's go. We don't have time for this. Don't you know she's an unclean person? You don't have time for her. Let's go. Jairus is experiencing a detour. The woman's experienced a detour. She thought she was going to touch Jesus and get away with her anonymity. She got called out. Jairus is losing his mind because he wants Jesus to do what he wants him to do and nothing else. So picking up the story again. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. This is one of what I call an Indiana Jones moment in Jesus' life. Uh, you'll remember the story in the first uh, movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, how uh, they have discovered the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones wants to get it and bring it back to the museum, but the bad guys, the Germans, the Nazis want to get it uh, and, and tap it for its power, and, and it goes back and forth from one group to the other. There's a scene when it feels a little bit like, don't be afraid, just believe. You'll remember it when you see it here. Indy, Indy, we have no time. If you still want the ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Truck? What truck?
why bother the teacher any longer? Little girl is dead. I don't think Jesus said, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along. But when he said, don't be afraid, just believe, it redirected the attention of Jairus. Just like when Indiana Jones says, get transport, get to England, boat, plane, I don't know. I'm going after that truck. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along. Their hope was placed in Indiana Jones. And when Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe, it redirected the attention and the hope back to Jesus. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. They literally hired professional mourners in that culture in this time. I know, crazy, but that's what they did. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, there's that word again, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, 12 years old, 12 years of an illness. At this, they were completely astonished. Of course they were. They were starting to make funeral plans, and now she's alive. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Yeah, good luck with that. Everybody knew she was knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, and 10 minutes later, she's out playing soccer with the rest of the kids in the neighborhood, and told them to give her something to eat. You know, we think that detours are disasters. We like to plan our work and work our plan and make things happen according to our schedule. And anytime we come up against a detour, we think it's just the end of the world. It happened to me last night. I had been at a party to celebrate with some great friends we were saying goodbye to because they're moving to another state. On the way home, I turned on Northside Drive. Guess what? There was a big tree down on Northside Drive. Had to detour. Couldn't go the way I wanted to. I didn't think it was the end of the world, but it was like, oh, gee willikers. And I wasn't using ways. So I had to figure it out on my own. But the thing that I think we see in this story is that it's miracles that happen on detours. A number of years ago, I was at a workshop for people thinking about planning a through hike or a section hike of the Appalachian Trail, and the person leading the workshop said, expect the unexpected, be flexible. When things go wrong, that makes the best stories. In this story, really the sandwich of a story, New Testament theologian uh, N.T. Wright says it's this story within a larger story and the middle story gives flavor to the outside and the outside gives flavor to the inside. I think there are a couple of things that we take away from this. And one is that God hears us even when we think he's not listening. Like the woman thinking she's going to sneak up and, and touch the hem of Jesus' cloak and, and be able to sneak away and maintain and protect her anonymity. She may have thought God wasn't watching. 
But God knew, and God provided help and healing. And secondly, I think in our myopic Presbyterian narcissistic sense in which we want Jesus to pay attention to us and do for us what we want him to do and and forget everybody else. We need to learn that God can care for others while he's caring for us as well. Jesus was on point. He was going to Jairus's house when he hit the pause button, hit the brakes, got out of the car and took care of the lady. He hadn't forgotten about the little girl. He was still on point and he cared for her. And that last little phrase in the story, he told them to give her something to eat, has always been a curiosity for me. Now, on the one hand, it's perfectly practical. Practical. Look, she was dead. Now she's alive. She probably needs a little something to jumpstart her metabolism and get it going. So how about giving her a corned beef sandwich, maybe a little pita and some hummus, just a little, little something pick-me-up to give her a little juice. But it also reminds us that Jesus is focused on the whole person, not just the soul. We come to church because we want our hearts to be strangely warmed, as the Wesleyans like to say. We want to feel close to God, and we are. But one of the things this story tells us is that Jesus isn't focused only on your heart, your soul, but on every little detail in your life. He knows about the business deal you're working on that you hope to close this week, not only because you want the income from it, but because you believe that that this deal will significantly and positively influence a lot of people. He knows about that nagging pain that you've been feeling for several months that you haven't told anyone about that he knows. He knows about it. Every little detail of your life. He knows when the moving van is going to show up with all of your stuff, even if you don't. He knows everything, and he cares about everything. Don't ever doubt it. He multitasks perfectly well. Let us pray. God, thank you for the assurance that you know everything about us. Thank you for giving us attention even when we think you're not looking, even when we think we are unworthy. Thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus into this world, not only to die for our sins and rise from the dead to give us a promise of everlasting life, but also to give us hope today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.